Hello and welcome to episode 87 of Onion Unlimited, the podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Torridon. In today's show, I'll be asking why do onions make you cry? I'll be telling you how I live with depression on a daily basis. And I'll be asking some XJWs, why did you preach? So, why do onions make you cry? Or to be more accurate, why does cutting an onion make you cry? I found the answer looking on the old uh, interweb. Apparently onions, when they're growing, absorb sulphur from the soil, which they then use in a number of amino acids. So when you take a knife to an onion, cruel as you are, you cut the cells of the onion, which releases these enzymes and, of course, the sulfur-rich amino acids, which then mix together to make a form of sulfuric acid, which vaporizes in the air and comes into contact with your eye. Your brain, of course, then triggers a tear response to wash the acid away. So I guess the next question is how can we stop onions from doing this? Well, it just so happens that I've got a few top tips for you. Number one, use a sharp knife. Apparently, this reduces the amount of damage to the onion onion cells and minimises the amount of chemicals released into the air. Number two, cut into the root part of the onion last. Apparently, that works. Number three, Call the onion in a fridge prior to cutting. This also minimises the amount of chemicals released. Number four, I don't like this one. Soak the onion in water to dissolve the amino acids. I'm not really sure I like that idea. Soggy onions, anyone? I like my onions raw, especially on uh, Donny kebabs. Number five, if you don't mind looking like a right twonk, wear swimming goggles in the kitchen while cutting your onions. Number six, use a ventilator or a fan to blow the chemical vapours away. I'm thinking probably the uh, extractor fan above your hob should work on this one. And number seven, don't eat onions. Uh, Onions apparently are gods. (gasps) Yes, you heard me right. The onion was actually worshipped as a god by ancient Egyptians. They believed that the onion's spherical shape and concentric rings symbolised eternity. They used to cover the tombs of their rulers with onion pitchers and onions played a vital role in burial rituals. They believed that onions would help the dead succeed in the afterlife. Moving on. How I live with depression. So you might be thinking, depression? Here's a guy who does a podcast and jokes about onions. He can't have depression. Well, don't let appearances fool you. The truth is, yes, I suffer terribly from depression. And in particular, manic depression, otherwise known these days as bipolar disorder. There are, of course, two types of bipolar, type 1 and type 2. I'm fortunate in a way to only have type 2. It means that my manic phases are actually less than full-blown mania that you get in type 1. I just get what's known as hypomania, which basically just means hypo under mania, not quite as high as mania. I can certainly feel happy during uh, my hypomanic episodes, uh, but not necessarily so. Most times hypomania is just masked by periods of increased energy. 
which sounds like a good thing, and it can be, especially if it's accompanied by creativity, for example, which it is fairly common for those of us with type 2 bipolar. Think uh, Stephen Fry, he has type 2. But sometimes the hypermanic phases are not so pleasant. They can result in me feeling unable or even unwilling to sleep, being awake for days on end and generally feeling very wound up and anxious. For me, it feels like every cell in my body is agitated and I just can't relax, which is why I now take a medication called quetiapine, which basically relaxes me and makes me feel tired. Type 1 mania is especially bad, and I guess I'm blessed not to suffer from those full-blown periods of uh, psychosis. Although there have been moments where I think I've been right on the edge of that, especially when I left the Jehovah's Witness cult in December 2019. I'd actually been off my medication for a while, and I was flying pretty high. And of course, when I lost everything, and I mean everything, the crash was so much harder than if I'd been stable on the medications. We live and learn. I suspect I will always be on medication for bipolar or manic depression. Then on the other hand, there is the depression. Type 1 and type 2 are equally bad when it comes to the depressive phases. These deep, dark depressions that can sometimes last for weeks or even months at a time, unlike the manic phases that usually last much shorter. So I've come to the conclusion that depression is something I pretty much have to live with. Uh, My depression can't be cured. I can take meds, and I do. I take uh, venlafaxine to take the edge off the dark feelings, but they don't really remove the depression. And on a typical day, I wake up feeling depressed. It's usually the first feeling of the day when I open my eyes, and it has been for many, many, many years, right back to my childhood. I'm sure that some of my listeners can identify with this. If so, let me know in the comments. My uh, depression is such that I've been unable to work as much as I'd like to for the past three years. Initially, when I left Jehovah's Witnesses, I was signed off uh, work altogether by my doctor after I suffered the trauma of leaving the cult. Back then, I was in a really bad state. I was suicidal, but I'm much better than I was back then. Uh, I just suffer these terrible bouts of depression where I don't particularly want to kill myself per se anymore, which is good. But if I could just go to sleep and not wake up again, that would be equally fine by me. My moods, I guess, fluctuate quite a bit still and sometimes quite rapidly. I can wake up in the morning feeling really bad and then within a short period of time, I'm not feeling so bad and then I can suddenly feel very depressed again. My original doctor diagnosed me with bipolar. My new doctor, when I first left the cult, she was absolutely brilliant. She suggested it might not be bipolar, but it could just be situational stressors, basically living in a cult. Of course, my marriage wasn't great. My marriage broke up and eventually losing my kids to this shunning, losing all of my friends and family, my home, my job, etc. She said that my reaction to all of that loss was actually quite normal. And that if I didn't react with depression and so forth, it would actually be quite worrying. <laughs> she helped me to see that recovery from that amount of trauma particularly when it happens all at once, wouldn't happen overnight. It could take years, her words, not mine. And indeed it has. Nearly three years on, I'm at a stage now where I can do a little bit of work. I do some web development for one client who has stuck with me for over 20 years. But apart from that, I I don't generally work. I do my podcasts, usually when I'm feeling a bit more energetic. But my, my sleep patterns are all over the place. 
sometimes I don't sleep. Other times I sleep for days. And I also have really bad anxiety, particularly when I leave my room and go outside, bordering on, I think, agoraphobia. It's not so bad if I have someone with me, but when I have to do it on myself, even a trip down the road to the doctor is a major thing that leaves me feeling drained. So I very rarely leave my bedsit. I spend most of my time in this this single 12 by 8 foot room. I think my bipolar, if indeed it is that, was originally triggered when I was abused as a child. If you've listened to my previous podcast, you'll know I had a complete mental breakdown at 11 years old, which lasted for a good couple of years. And I think it's one of those things you never really get over when it happens that early. Uh, I did recover, kind of, but it just left me with these really bad periods of uh, depression interspersed with these high moods. My late teens and 20s were marked with severe depression, sometimes lasting months at a time. Um, Getting married, at least at first, and uh, especially having kids did help at first. I think having the kids especially gave me something more positive to focus on rather than just my own feelings. But my disfellowshipping in 2006 to 2009 made me really ill again. I had uh, another complete breakdown and I guess I was never really the same after that. The uh, the bipolar, if indeed it was di- bipolar um, that was diagnosed at the time, was particularly bad from around 2011 to 2018. Uh, interestingly, that's when I wrote a lot of my poems, which were on my website, bipolarpoet.co.uk. I wrote a book of poetry called In Two Minds when I was experiencing these more energetic periods of hypermania. But the poems were not happy. Um, You can be hypermanic and depressed at the same time, which is known as a mixed state. Like I say, high in bipolar disorder doesn't necessarily mean uh, jumping around for joy. So around 2011, I was placed on medication for bipolar disorder, which kind of took the edge off of the extreme feelings, especially the highs. The hypermanic phases were more controlled, but the, the meds did I think very little for my depression and I spent a lot of time feeling very, very low still. I think some of that was due to the congregation I was in at the time. There were some pretty mean-spirited people, especially one of the elders who seemed to have it in for me. Interestingly, when I moved to congregations in 2017, things started to improve a bit. It was a good congregation with elders who didn't judge, to be fair. They They were good guys on the whole. I felt like I could just be myself. I didn't have to try too hard and uh, I made I made some good friends there that understood depression and over time I found that my depression lifted somewhat. I wasn't brilliant but I did reach a point where I actually came off the medication I'd been on for six years but ultimately that may have contributed to my downfall. You see without the medication I ended up having a breakdown again only this time it it took the form of a very high period energetic period which was coupled with more of those uh, situational stressors at home with my now ex-wife and then I ended up getting disfellowshipped again this time for immorality and I, I think to some degree coming off the meds may have contributed to that me acting uh, somewhat out of character and that's of course when my whole world came crashing down I would call it my dark night of the soul and uh, I'll be doing a podcast about that very subject in future weeks. So yes, my life has been syncopated with these periods of depression and low energy followed by these energetic up moods. I really don't know which which is worse, actually, the ups or the downs. And it's really affected me. 
I'm older now without the pressures that come with an unhappy marriage and being in a cult. But quite frankly, I'm exhausted. (laughs) The trauma of the last few years has really taken it out of me and I feel fatigued most of the time and very old. But, you know, things are getting better. I I really mustn't grumble. I've received the help I needed. I've got a brilliant doctor. She's moved on now to another practice, but my new doctor is equally good. And when I spoke to him the other day, he commented on the fact that my notes did show bipolar disorder. And he's actually looking at the moment at changing some of my meds because of the uh, physical side effects that some of these meds are causing me. Not so good. Again, they are sufficient to mean I couldn't hold down a nine to five job working for a company at the moment, at least, but I do what I can do. I do a little bit of work, keep myself busy. I do my podcasts as and when I feel able. And of course, I'm in a loving relationship now with my girlfriend, Mariella, who has been absolutely supportive and helped me move forward from all the loss and trauma of the past two or three years. I really don't know where I'd be without Mariella. Moving forward, I've learned I just have to be patient with myself. Healing from trauma doesn't happen overnight. It can literally take years. And during that time, you may have to be on meds. You may not be able to do as much as you like. You may not be able to work or not work full time. You may, like me, have to rest a lot. Basically, listen to your body. Don't overstress it. I spend a lot of time sleeping, which my body seems to need, particularly to deal with the uh, the trauma. Will I ever be 100% right? Probably not. I think I've been through a hell of a lot mentally, emotionally, and, and even spiritually. I do feel that I was spiritually abused by the cult I was in, by the organisation, the governing body, and on a grassroots level by some pretty horrible elders. Not all elders, like I say, last congregation, they were great, but uh, a good fair few of the elders I've come across in my past were nothing more than narcissistic bullies who seemed to know that I'd experienced abuse and trauma in the past. It's almost like they can smell it and they latch onto that and uh, take advantage of you sick individuals that they are. The only reason I'm making this podcast is because I want people to know that having depression after leaving Jehovah's Witnesses, especially if your exit was accompanied by a marriage breakdown, which is often the case, all that loss is often more than a person can bear. Of course, the shunning, losing your family and your friends, and depression is the natural response to it. So I would say my message is be kind to yourself. Give yourself time, realise that you've been through trauma, real trauma. PTSD is a real thing for those who exit cults, like Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, especially if they lose their families, friends, livelihood, etc. You're not weak, you're not abnormal. My doctor actually said that she sees similar symptoms in refugees that have fled war-torn areas to come to the UK. You know, ones that have lost loved ones and their homes and everything in the fighting in their home country. Um, She actually said that the trauma that you go through when you leave a cult, and she did used to refer to Jehovah's Witnesses as a cult, as did many of the medical professionals I came across, she said the trauma is a very, very real thing. And her advice was to give it time, years perhaps, for the trauma to subside to manageable levels. I think I will always suffer depression. I think I'll always have fluctuations in mood. I was basically given a crap hand at the outset with the abuse I suffered as a child. And it kind of set me up for life with a disposition towards depression. But 
I also think I'm doing a lot better and I'm actually very, very proud of where I am now. It may not be where I want to be quite yet. There's a lot more work to be done, but I'm doing okay. So now I want to ask the question, why do Jehovah's Witnesses preach? I posted this on Twitter this week to see what responses I would get. Do Jehovah's Witnesses preach because they genuinely love worldly people and want to save their lives? Or is it because they think they have to preach in order to live forever in paradise? These are some of the comments that I received. Miss Emmy, who is a genuinely nice person, said it was a mix of both for her. Preaching was definitely forced and obligatory, not something she wanted to do, but she said she genuinely wanted to help other people. I think that's really nice. But that's not the case with everybody. Terrible Brain wrote, We were told that bearing fruit was not about bringing anyone into the truth. Our job was just to tell people so they had the opportunity to make a choice. So yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses do it so they can bear fruit, not because they particularly love anyone. I'd agree with that. We were actually told not so long back in the organisation that it didn't really matter if you brought anyone into the truth or not. Bearing fruit wasn't about your effectiveness in the ministry. It was literally just about going out and doing it. That was your fruit, going out and attempting to witness to people, even if you never met anybody. Seemed a bit daft to me. It sounded like a terrible definition of bearing fruit, but there you go. Melissa Beckwith, she wanted to live forever in paradise, but she also says that she genuinely wanted to make Jehovah happy. So maybe not so much uh, love of neighbour, but certainly love of God. Lou Luna said uh, it's why she wanted to go on the ministry, but agoraphobia made it too spicy. XJW Live just posted a gif with the uh, with the word quotas, <laughs> a question mark on. And the King of Babylon said, I used to preach because I had to, as though it meant my salvation. So yeah, I think a lot of witnesses go on the ministry, not particularly because they love people, but because they feel it's tied up with their own salvation. So in a sense, it's a little bit of a selfish uh, activity. Technical Ben said people do it to stop the elders badgering them. In his locality, he said the elders could not understand how it was possible for a person to do less than 10 hours and would prefer to fake results than admit some people are different with health, life and responsibilities. Rachel XJW says, ultimately, I think it's selfishly motivated to save themselves. I agree. She continues, I don't think love of neighbour is on their minds at all. If it was, they would dignify them by actually listening to them and trying to understand their point of view. Rather, Jehovah's Witnesses are trying to shut down at any hint of criticism. That's not love. Technical Ben said he always tried to be reasonable with people on the ministry. He just wanted to share what he had with them to anyone that wished to listen. (laughs) Two people over 20 years, he says. That's probably better than some results, actually. And then Jerome has gone and posted that wonderful video of Anthony Morris III telling everyone that they've got blood on their hands. You just take a look, and this is the idea Jehovah's getting across at your hands. And you look at your hands now. uh, Only God, as he looks at your hands in here and all those that are tied in, does he see blood there? The humans sitting next to you, they they might have an idea because they know you well and you haven't been out in service in weeks. Well, guess what? Most likely God's seeing some blood all over your hands. Unbelievable that, isn't it? If you've not been out on the ministry for weeks, that means that you've got blood on your hands. That really is guilt tripping. But that's the uh, that's the kind of things they come out with. So is it 
down to genuine love for neighbour. There might be an element of that with some people, particularly ones that are a bit more empathetic. Uh, but generally speaking, I think most Jehovah's Witnesses, myself included, didn't really do it for that reason. We did it because it saved us. Or we thought it saved us. And it was expected of us. Time to drop onto a voice call with my girlfriend, Mariella, all the way from Australia. This time we got into talking about signs that you see on people's doors when you're calling around on the ministry. Things like no cold calling, no canvassing, dangerous dog. What did you used to do as a Jehovah's Witness when you came across these things? Let me know in the comments. So, Mariella, um, dangerous dog signs. What did you used to do when you came across those on the doors? You've got the signs here on, on gates where you've got dangerous dog or whatever. Yeah. Don't, or, you know, dog on premises, don't enter. Okay. So what do Jehovah's Witnesses do when they come across a sign that says dangerous dog? Brothers and sisters just, you know, open the door, open the gate up. They don't care. Oh, yeah. Man, Jehovah, will, you know, Jehovah will protect, protect me. <laughs> you know. Um, anyway, so. And you've got. A story about this, haven't you? A brother and sister who ignored the warning sign. There was the sign said it's a dangerous dog. Yeah. Do not enter. They went in anyway. The dog bit them. Right. They went to the council. Council put the dog down. Oh, so you can no. imagine. Oh no. You can imagine what this did to the householder. And yeah. They were just yeah. So it was like, oh, we did not. Go to that place. Oh, that's you just... don't want to be seen by them, you know. Because yeah, it was, I just thought you got to be stupid. Like honestly, yeah, there's a reason for it, you know. Like don't be. A no, hero. I used to. Uh, if there was like dog signs on the door, and I didn't know what I was getting into, I didn't used to go. I used to think that was just suicide, wasn't it? Yeah. And the other one I didn't used to do, which different ones used to get really annoyed at me was, um, you know, the old signs on the doors that say um, no cold callers. Yeah. And I used to say, we're not cold callers. I think you are cold callers. We are. <laughs> yeah. We're not invited. You're not invited. You're a cold caller. And then uh, people would get really annoyed. They go, can't you read? That was the thing they used to say. Yes. It? Can't you read? Different ones would, uh, different brothers or sisters I used to work with, they used to start the argument up, you know, well, we've got a right to come around, you know, we're, we're doing this life-saving yeah, message and all the rest of it. argue with them. Look, they very clearly don't want anybody knocking their door, you know? Um, yeah. And there's other ways now that if, if they really were interested, they could go and get some literature from the car or whatever, couldn't they? Yeah. The exactly. problem was in our area where I lived, last congregation I lived in, the council had actually put up those no cold calling canvassing signs, uh, not just, yep. they weren't individual doors that had chosen to do it. They actually put signs at the at the end of the street and they made the entire street a no oh, cold wow. calling street, whether or not people wanted cold callers or not. And when I saw those signs, I just used to say, well, I'm not doing it. You know, the council have said we're not to call on this area, you know? Yeah. Do you remember um, Do Not Calls? Oh, yeah. The old Do Not Call list. Yeah. And then you end up doing the Do Not Call because you're chatting. no one's paying attention. No one's paying attention. <laughs> the Do Not Call list was funny because um, if you weren't careful, you can actually sort of suggest to the person that they could go down on the list. You know, if they say, why yes. do you keep calling round? Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, I used to work I used to with different. Yeah, I used to work with ones that would say, "Well, if you don't want us to call, just let us know, and we'll put you down on the list." There was this little old sister in our congregation. She was a bit annoying, actually. Someone actually shot her with an air rifle once <laughs> on the ministry. Oh, wow! Yeah, she was just so annoying. But she used to say that to practically everybody she called on. They'd go, "I'm not interested," and she'd like respond with, uh, "Well, if you don't want us to call, I can put you down on my special list." And uh, you just saw their eyes light up. It was like, yeah. oh, good, yeah, please. <laughs> and um, when I moved into that congregation, this this sister had her own private map. You know how you could take okay. your own map out? Yeah, and it had, yes. I think, it had about three hundred houses on the map, and about two hundred of them were do not calls. <laughs> we had to go round and actually <laughs> knock two hundred doors and say, "In the past, you know, we've we've not called, but have you got a problem with us?" calling and probably i don't know probably 80 percent said no no it's fine call if you want i'm not interested but you know whatever uh, uh, generally speaking people were just like look i'm just not interested so you know? tolerant yeah. though aren't they you know if i said to if someone came to my door and said i'm i'm i don't know i'm i'm selling um bananas and i said look i'm not interested and he went away and then four weeks later he came back and said hello i'm just selling bananas not mm. in, i'm not interested and then four weeks later just selling bananas. I'd get mm. really, really pissed off in the end, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. Or well, then they'd be like, I'm sorry, you didn't tell me personally. Oh, you didn't call. tell me personally. I don't want before. your bananas. I don't yeah. want your bloody oh. bananas. <laughs> don't don't get into technicalities with people. It's like, just don't, you know. Nice. Well, you never told me personally because I've never been here before calling on your door. And the thing this is, is the thing is, they oh, might not be interested today, but tomorrow someone they love might drop dead, and then they might be interested. Oh, that was always yeah. that was always a one. Yeah. their circumstances might change. No, they're in a weak position and vulnerable, oh. so we might be able to yeah. coerce them by taking advantage of the vulnerable state. That's it. That's what that was about. You know what's nice? Uh, being able to tell these stories and actually have you understand where I'm coming from because most people you know worldly people if I was to tell them (laughs) what used to go off on the doors and the ministry uh, they just wouldn't have a clue what I was on about would they we both have that history so you know we can we can talk about things and not have to try to explain yeah it's trying to explain it to somebody yeah do not cause not homes (laughs) S8s. It's so triggering. Yeah, it's triggering. And it's like they don't understand either, do they? You know? No, they, they still don't. They just look at you like, yeah, so. Whereas someone who's lived it can yeah. sympathize and empathize. The thing is, you. as well, I, uh, I wasn't only a pioneer, I was also a, um, I had an egg round and I was also selling double glazing at one point. Oh, wow. So I'd so go to the. Differentiating oh, they, between. They didn't know what I was. Therefore, in the end, mm-hmm. and the other one as well. You know, the back in the days where uh, the generation wasn't an overlapping one. <laughs> Way back when. <laughs> Way back yeah. when, when everyone that was when alive, we were in, young. yeah, everyone who was alive in nineteen fourteen would be dead yeah. soon. You know, uh, and I mean, they really preempted that, didn't they? Because you know, way back the nineteen fourteen generation were only sort of in their, I don't know, seventies, weren't they? Something like that. Mm. You know, like sort of nineteen eighty four. 
I mean, I, I started Pioneer in 1986. You know, so the people that were alive in 1914 were only sort of in their, uh, what were they, what would they have been, 70, weren't they? Oh, and yes, yes, 70. 72, yeah. you know, and we sort of wished yeah. them dead at that point. Yeah. <laughs> and then we said... Oh, they um, felt the love they did. <laughs> oh, they felt the love, yeah. And then... The other thing was they said... I hope and die already because we make, need Armageddon to come. <laughs> <laughs> to make it a little bit earlier as well, they said it, you'd have to be 10 at the time in 1914 in order to understand what was happening, didn't they? Remember they used to yeah. say that? Yes, yes. <clears throat> so that would, you know, that would make them 80, you know, hurry up and die. And I used to, I used to have like stand-up arguments with people on the door that Armageddon was definitely coming in my lifetime. Yeah. Most likely in their lifetime, you know, if they were 80, it was going to happen any any sort of minute soon, you know. Yeah. If I could go back, well, they're all dead now, aren't they? But if I could go back and uh, tell everyone uh, you were right and I was wrong. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Here's another one. (laughs) I went to a door and my kid, you know, especially when they were really little, you know, like sort of six or five or whatever. And they would do the door and I'd just be stood there like some sort of melon in the background. Mm. That always used to make me feel a bit embarrassed, you know? Yeah. Like, why am I even there? (laughs) And you always used to get the uh, odd person as well that would say, um, I think it's disgusting that you bring your children around knocking on the doors. Yeah. Did you have a thing thing with pioneers? uh, Used to call it the pioneer walk. Pioneer shuffle. Oh, Pioneer Shuffle. Yeah, two Pioneer steps shuffle. forward, one step back. Sort of step thing. back, yeah. I used to be uh, <laughs> I used to be quite anti Pioneer Walk at one yeah, point. Yeah, my dad was. I used to anti. say Pioneer Walk, you can't have a Pioneer Walk. That's not uh, being at it urgently, is it? No, that's it. Changed my mind over time though. I used to spend inordinate amounts of time drinking tea and visiting cafes. <laughs> leave, leaving a leaflet. In some places because we used to go so regularly, what we would do is we'd just put like a tract or a magazine or a brochure yeah. on the table while we had a cuppa. Yeah. So anyone who walked past would see it. Like, well, we knew that we were witnesses, so we've done our bit, so it's okay. That's it. Yeah. Waste <laughs> um, of time. It was like um, starting your time as well was a big thing, wasn't it? Yeah. If you didn't start your time before you went to the group, you were done. So you had to uh, leave a leaflet with someone as you were walking up the street or um, write a letter to someone, do do something to start your or time. Or send a text message. Or send a text message visit. to someone, yeah. And then then you could, you weren't supposed to count your time at the group, but I did. I used to count my time oh, at the group. To. Yeah, I just thought, I oh, like, well, the... my neighbours see me walking out and yeah, know that it. I'm going out door to door. So I'm... I basically, in the end, I used to count any time that would have otherwise been mine. <laughs> I just, I used to just work on the uh, reasoning. I'm a pioneer. I'm, this is my job, and yep. I used to approach it a bit like work. You know, like when you when you're doing a, a secular job, you don't keep starting and stopping your time all day. You just say, "I'm at work for eight hours." Some days you yeah. might have days where you're not quite as productive, quite as, as productive. You know, there's not so much to do. Other days you will. That's how I used to do it. Yeah. When I used to um, auxiliary, which wasn't very often, but when I used to auxiliary, I'd be like, okay, I'm counting from when I leave home. Yeah. Once yeah, I got I my to. time in, once I got my time in, whatever I went over the time, I wouldn't I wouldn't report it. It was like, that's okay. So I'm making up. for. Oh, uh, yeah. I used added, to sort of adjust it here and there. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I did sometimes. I'd, I'd sort of like count 
count time sometimes and then other times I'd drop it. But I, I my first pioneer partner that I ever pioneered with, he um he used to have a stopwatch. And he literally used to start the time when he started talking to someone, stop the time when he wasn't talking to someone, and he even used to stop it if he went went for a toilet break. He'd stop the time and then start wow. it again after he'd had his, you know, daily ablutions. I don't think he ever got his time in. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he ever got his time in. Because at the end of each month, we'd say, right, how, how much are you done? And I'd say, oh, I've done 70 or 90, actually. It was 90 at the yeah. time, wasn't it? Yeah, how, how much are you done? 90. He'd go, oh, I've only done 40. <laughs> <laughs> can you have done 40 we've been together the like, whole time. all the time you know <laughs> and you've only done 40 i've done 90 mate i don't think my conscience was quite as highly tuned as uh, other pioneers no i think when you've done it for so long you're like okay you start thinking i've got to work smarter not harder. To, to be honest if you only counted the time that you were talking to people it would be minimal it would be absolutely minimal and talking to people, oh, absolutely! Nine times out of ten consists of "Hello, I'm a Jehovah's Witness." No, I'm not interested. Go away. Okay. Yeah. I mean, how long's that? <laughs> Three and a half seconds, isn't it? <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's how it was for me. Anyway, it's not natural, though, is it? Going to somebody's it's not. going to no. somebody's door and basically saying you're going to die unless you join yeah. a little group, which is not what they say. I mean, they say, "Hello, we'd like to." Uh, show you how God is going to get rid of all the wickedness in the world. And that sort of sounds really good at first, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. Until they find out that they're the wicked person that's going to be killed if they don't join your cult. Exactly. (laughs) I hate to think of how many hours I wasted my time doing all that witnessing for nothing. Mm. Because what I was telling people isn't true. There's no Armageddon coming. I mean, there might be a nuclear holocaust at some point, but there's no no God, God... directed apocalypse coming as far as I can work out and there's certainly no Jehovah's Witness only paradise afterwards for you to for you to live yeah, for a hundred right. billion years according to Jarrett Losh imagine to live not only for a thousand years but for a million years for ten million years for hundred million years for hundred billion years Yes, indeed. Living for a hundred billion years as me, I can't think of anything worse, to be honest. Which is why I quite like the idea of reincarnation, coming back with amnesia and doing it all over again as somebody else. But like I've said before, knowing my luck, if reincarnation is true, I'll probably come back as me. (laughs) 